This programme was first broadcast on Canterbury's community access radio station Plains FM 96.9 and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. No my, had my. Welcome to the Tamariki Book Festival. On this programme, let's meet the authors and illustrators of the Tamariki Book Festival. Kia ora, Rachel. Kia ora, hui hui tātou. Everything talks with me nowadays. Nothing is separate. There's no distance between us. No thick veil blocks the natural world from the human world. All of the air is thresh and thin. A bumblebee comes into the room, ambles around having a chat. A fly crawls up my arm. A seagull sits down beside me, not even standing on its legs, just sits all fluffed up, gazing into my eyes. When the tectonic plate splits, blue and white lights appear two, three, four hours before it's about to happen. The tectonic plate splits in only 5% of the world's earthquakes. This is a natural part of the world's growing, Earth's growing process, her expansion, her stretching, her breaking open. Time is no longer linear. Time contracts and expands. Some things are seen before they happen. Other things appear after they have happened. Terror replaces any subtle feelings. Doing overrides sequential thinking. Each action is separate, discreet. I write this journal to remember myself. I'm now about to read an extract from the end of Earthquakes and Butterflies. Is this how God does it? Rips us apart, takes everything away, so we are fresh and new and open. Is this how God's revealed to us, shedding everything I loved, I once held dear, everything I once delighted in? Well, that's not quite the end. That's about four-fifths of the way through. (laughs) And this is the end. And this is from the diary sequence. Um, There's a whole novel in here too. I dream I am a caterpillar, crawling from leaf to leaf, twig to twig. That's all I have ever known. Then one day the twig on which I placed myself and stayed for a very long time snaps, breaks in two. Within seconds of the twig cracking, I find myself naked, bare of my cocoon. I find myself flying through the air. Instead of legs, I'm developing wings. Instead of a striped furry body, I have velvet wings that dance and weave colours in the light. My body can float in air. I'm learning to fly, to float, to drift in sky. Occasionally I nibble a leaf, but I'm not desperate anymore for the leaves, the way I was when I was a caterpillar. Everything's changed. I rise on the air higher and higher into the sky. My relationship to air, to breeze, to wind current, to heat, to cold... All of these things have changed irrevocably. Some days I can't remember how it was when I was a caterpillar. I see caterpillars walking around on the ground or on a branch or a leaf or a twig and I wonder just how it is for them. And this is an excerpt from my most recent novel called Inangahua Gold and this is an historical novel and it's really about what happened here in the 1850s and prior to that and and really how it is for migrants and how there's different ways to to become here. 
Pepper wonders what on earth got him into, got into him to have contemplated climbing these great mountains. These southern Alps are so utterly unlike anything he's ever known. And now this, a huge cascade, a mountain of stones to negotiate, and he utterly dependent on the goodwill of that Irish scoundrel Murphy and that Māori servant Rōreka, who refuses to speak English to him, he shivers in his boots. May Fakafiti Mato announces Rōreka. We will cross, Murphy informs Pepper. May hikoi tato mai i tenarako iti ki tenarako iti, says Rōreka. We will walk from one small bush to another small bush, Murphy says. Māori feels a strangely commanding type of language to Pepper. Do this, do that, all the time, this and then that, this and then that, and then what, he wonders, you would think they own the place. Kawa e titiro kiraro. Don't look down to the crevices below. Haere ki o koto hope kia u. Murphy hears Rōreka. He instructs Pepper, tie this rope firmly around your waist. He ties the rope around his own waist and throws Pepper the rope. More directions, Pepper grimaces. Pepper doesn't catch the rope. Rodeka catches it. She goes to him and, lifting his pack a little, ties the rope firmly around his waist. She then ties the end of the rope around her own waist. Pepper feels strangely comforted by this act of kindness and somehow he's able to go on. Oh, that's beautiful. Would you like to finish? I can finish another little bit from yeah, that exit. Yeah. At midday, Murphy reaches the far side of the scree slope. He looks back and sees Pepper walking carefully, placing one step heavily in front of the other, huffing, puffing, panting his way across the slope. Rodeka walks deftly in her thick flax sandals, as if it's the sort of thing you might love to go do on a good day. Stroll across a scree slope with snow-peaked alps surrounding you. She's made this journey every summer since she can remember. She sees Murphy up ahead. She's aware that he understands about this journeying through difficult places. He understands you let these places grow on you, in you, slowly but surely. Murphy watches her attentive to the mountain itself. He thinks to himself it takes a hold of you, a place like this. I can see how she would want to return again and again. He returns her smile with a twinkle in his eye. Strangely, he feels utterly at home here in these steep, snow-peaked mountains. He would like to become how she is with the scree slope, careful, thoughtful, light-hearted, deft. Kia ora. It's beautiful. Thank you for reading that. just want to give a little summary about your work. Um, so... Today, talking to Kathleen Gallagher is a poet, playwright, novelist and filmmaker. Kathleen has authored three collections of poetry, 17 plays, seven feature films and two novels. Have I got that number right? Yeah. <laughs> Kathleen is creatively talented across many genres and is deeply connected to Aotearoa and Ōtotahi and Mother Nature. Kia ora, Kathleen. Kia ora, Rachel. I was so moved by the depth and breadth of your creativity. Did you think of yourself as creative when you were young or equivalent words to that? I guess I've, I didn't really know other, any other way to be. Mm. Um, 
in the world, yeah. I, when I was little, I, I learned a lot of really long um, Irish songs from my from my uncles and aunties and my mum and dad. And, mm. So from an Irish background? Um, yeah, my yeah. mostly, yeah. Mm. Um, it's New Zealand Irish, mm. um, West Coast Irish and South Canterbury Irish. Mm. And, yeah, so we grew up with, you know, singing and reciting even from the age of, you know, five, that really long poems and long songs. It's, it's a scholar gypsy tradition, really, the, the Irish scholar gypsy yeah, tradition mm. that I grew mm. up inside. Mm. And, um, and also inside a, an, an ancient Māori, an ancient Celtic view of the natural world um, that doesn't make lines and deline- you know, delineate between people and, and trees and, mm-hmm. you know. Mm. So like birds come into our house mm. <laughs> and have a chat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's how, yeah, that's how I grew up. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, we talked about poetry. You talked, you described it as growing up around poetry. So um, when did you come into contact with other New Zealand poets outside of your family? Um, oh, we used to recite everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't just... Yeah, yeah so I, I'm just trying to think. Um, I think I learned Eileen Duggan's The Tui when I was pretty young. Mm. Um, yeah, no, we, yeah, we didn't mm. really discriminate. Mm. <laughs> we learned everybody, like mm. the English poets as well, yeah. you know, and yeah, yeah, everybody, yeah. 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 Oh, that's so wonderful. My experience of poetry was school English and people like Solzhenitsyn, and, you know, as a 15-year-old girl, I couldn't relate to, uh, you know, a Russian on the steeps, <laughs> a political prisoner probably, um, so... I just think it's amazing you had that grounding. Well, I think when I also when I grew up, poetry was really it loomed really large in New Zealand. Like um, there were the women poets, and then there was a wave after them of the men poets. Mm. You know, so there was Ursula Bethel and Jessica Mackay, you know, Jesse Mackay and and Eileen Duggan, and, and then the the men poets sort of came in and sort of um, they did their thing. So I remember when I was uh, sixteen at the um, Great Hall in the the Art Centre. And um, Alan Brunton, um, James K. Baxter, and Dennis Glover on the stage, half drunk, and they had to sort of help <laughs> him down. And but I just remember hearing Baxter read then, and I decided then when I heard him read, I thought, yeah, this is what I'm to do. Mm. And it's just very clear. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah, he was an amazing performer. Like his 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 reading, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Um, and what was it about that experience you think you thought this is what I'm to do? Oh, it just was very clear. There was no, yeah. I think, yeah. I thought, mm. yeah. <laughs> and there were, I remember there were no women on the stage, and I thought that's that's interesting, you know, because it was sort of like things must have flipped a little bit after post World War Two, and they got a little bit more, they got a bit more sexist again, and they sort of goes in waves these things. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It does. So. When I grew up, then we set up, um, Bill Doreen and Carol Woodward set up a Blue Ladder Theatre um, when I was at university and I started writing plays um, for Blue Ladder Theatre. That was in a, in a warehouse on Cashel Street up the top of a building and 
then we set up a group of us women set up Women's Action Theatre, mm, mm. and that was in '86 or something. Oh no, maybe early '80s. Yeah. So it was a whole, and and we used to 85? go. Yeah, and yeah. then I used to go around the pubs like with. Um, Ged Maybury and Kerry Hume and we used to stand up in the pubs and like you know there'd be 80 people all drinking and we'd we'd grab a mic and off we'd go and everyone would shut up you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and the Zetland and stuff and these pubs so that's how it was and then I think something happened in the late 80s I think it was after um, you know the neoliberals got into power with um, you know Roger Douglas and all the terrible policies they brought in and so people weren't able to just work part-time or shift from job to jobs because everybody had jobs, you know, it didn't matter if you worked in the railways or postal service or whatever. Mm. And I used to clean in the mornings and for the staff so that I could write all day. And and um, so that's sort of how it was, you know, so we could all survive like that. Mm-hmm. And, um, mm. and then things got really hard. Mm. So I think it, it got much harder for people to do what we'd been able to do. Because mm. yeah. I'm thinking, um, going to University of Canterbury in... Born in seventy two, so late eighties, early nineties, and it was just when I was just as student fees were about to come in, and and it's it seemed like the culture of universities changed to very um, there's a level of accountability and bureaucracy and hard work. Whereas when I had read about people's experiences of university before me, there was a lot more. And I did arts degree, you know, a lot more creativity and space to uh, grow and learn and explore. Yeah, and we did. We had demonstrations like all the time. Like we had mm. women reclaim the night. Like we marched through the parks and 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 we had the um, the Springbok tour. And and like when I was in seventh form, it was the last. And my my principal went out on the last anti-Vietnam war march with seventh formers. You know, like mm, mm. Um, so. Um, there was all sorts of, you know, um, thinking really hard, and so that was all sort of going. And I think probably the, you know, the fees too that that mm. really killed it for people because yeah. they became really worried about money and yeah. and the choices and, they, the subjects they chose to study. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And also we also were anti-materialist as well. Mm. So like, you know, we weren't into accumulating goods and wealth. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the part 80s of our and 90s were very much about that. And then the well, the 90s they, they did that flip, and I think it was somewhere about 87. I think I remember um, this man telling me about the fish in the sea that the fish all shifted in 87, and it was like a sort of thing happened in the world in 87. But I think it's happening again now the other way. So. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, that kind of explains to me. I was asked, thinking, why did you go to Dublin and study drama? But was it an Irish connection, family? I didn't go to Dublin and study drama. No? I um No, I studied ATC, I did ATCL here, and ah. I did it here. when ah. Yeah, I studied it through, yeah, my mum... Oh, I've um, misread something completely. Yeah, but it was at the Dublin, you know, it was through Dublin, yeah. So I didn't actually physically go to Dublin oh, and do that. Though you did I have, it by remote? I did it by remote, yeah. 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 Um, yeah, yeah. So, and I did that when I was quite young. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what did theatre... Give you what did theatre open up in your life? Well, I think it, it wasn't a new thing. I mean, I'd been exposed to it from like zero. yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Um, I was in Naya Marsh's play. She did a play. She directed Midsummer Night's Dream when I was nine, and I was a fairy <laughs> in, in Midsummer Night's Dream um, yes. with Naya Marsh. I can remember what she was like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so it wasn't a new thing. It was just. Then what, then what was the thinking behind creating the Women's Actions Theatre? 
Was well, it wanting a choice in what you made? I think the Women's Action Theatre was like we actually, we, we wrote all our own plays and we wrote all our own chants and, you know, they were in English and Māori and we, we just, we made all our own, um, everything, we created everything, so, yeah, from scratch. And uh, so we, we were this pretty in staunch woman's voice in a place where most of the writers in those days, most of the playwrights, I think at one stage it was like 2% of mm-hmm. playwrights were women. Mm-hmm. Um, and the same area, same with filmmakers. Um, it was it was really quite a male um, zone. So we sort of, we went into it, yeah, <laughs> as a group, which was a really good way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> to start in, yeah. Absolutely. So I wrote with Kate when Stanley first, we co-wrote first, and then I wrote with Jen Rippingale later. Yeah, yeah. 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 And when did you pick up a camera? Well, um, I didn't really pick up the camera. I just worked with camera people because I'd worked with John Christoffels in the in the Blue Ladder Theatre and he'd done lighting. He was really into lighting. He's mad on lighting and he's at the, at the University now he lectures here. But we, I started working with him and he's he's really into drama. And so we start, I started, he was on camera, yeah. So that was about, that was when I was in Nelson, um, because I was writing radio plays there, I wrote Charlie Bloom, which um, which I love, <laughs> and um, I wrote Charlie Bloom, and then I came, I shifted to Christchurch. When I shifted back to Christchurch from Nelson, that's when I got involved in film. When I started making films, yeah, mm, mm. and that was the peace with the peace movement. I wrote, I made Totemori, Breath of Peace, but that wasn't my very first film. I made some, I made some short films before that. Yes, yes. Yeah. What do you like about making films? I like listening to people, mm. like what you were doing to me now. <laughs> I like uh, I like listening to people um, move into a space where they can see clearly what it is they have to breathe out into the world. Mm. And putting them on film creates another layer of a visual, is it? I think having it on film, um, I can some, we can sometimes go into places where they might not be able to describe. So in Totemori, Breath of Peace, we worked with um, the Natural History Film Unit footage of like the dolphins, and because I realised that the dolphins are the carriers of peace as well, and the, their messengers and the whales and the mahi that they're doing. And so we worked at another level with the footage, and then we worked mm. at another level with the with the music. Mm. So there's sort of like these layers. Mm. Yeah. So that's I've how never heard that it. description before. I have a tattoo of a dolphin. I got when I was 21. Yeah, yeah. yeah the dolphins. Um, the white dolphin uh, up at Polaris um, is Nati Kuya and Tumatako Kiri, and they Kura Hopo tribes, the ancient Māori. Um, the white dolphin used to bring the ships safely in, and in 1904, the white dolphin um, was made the first mammal in the world to get um, protection under Richard Seddon. Mm. Mm. So, dolphin is very significant for the people here of this mm. island. Yeah. Mm. 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 I always felt very connected to the ocean. Mm. That was significant for me at the time. Yeah. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah, I hear. I hear. Yes, the dolphin. Mm. You have such a rich, deep experience of life and land and people. It's really moving to me. Yeah, this is a very ancient island, this island that we live on, that mm. we grown up in. Mm. Mm. And if you heal here, like uh, when I was younger, I used to worry that I used to think we're going to forget all the old knowledge, you know. And my dad said to me, um, "You're not to worry about this." And I said, "Why?" <laughs> and he said, "Because when you heal, that when you walk here." And that's healing, putting your heels on the ground when you walk. It comes through your feet and it'll come up. The land will speak mm. through us. Mm. And so it's always safe. Mm. And it's always held, but we have to remember to walk mm. in the places that are sacred to us and are dear to us. Mm. And then the story will come through us. Yeah. Mm. Mm. From the land through us. Mm. The Fenua. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And you're a storyteller. <laughs> <laughs> and you just tell, keep telling stories. Yeah. 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 Your latest novels, your two novels, and your films, and poetry. Mm. Mm. What's most important to you at the moment in the stories? That you're telling? Uh, I think the water's coming through now. Yeah, the water's speaking really clearly now. Mm. So I'm working on a film called Rohi Kodipodipo, The Swamp, The Sacred Place. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about it. Well, there are places that, have, that we've, you know, in the past people have turned away from, and they're the places. They're the sacred places. Mm. So before Naitahu commenced or Kaitahu commenced their negotiations with the Crown, they said there were three taonga that had to be returned before anything was talked. One was Aureke Mount Cook, and the other was a Ruhikorepurepo, a swamp area up near Kaipuyapa. And when I was young, I used to go and look in there, and I used to think, because you can't, it's all just surrounded and um, by bush and birds, it's all birds, it's a wild place. And I used to think, is there a massive piece of ponamu in here? Where's, what's the taonga? And now I realise that the place is the taonga and Christchurch sits, it's a city of Repo yeah. and Ropo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's mm. where we're living. It's yeah. mm. yeah. mm. where all the, the food is, it's how you live. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And that's why we need to keep the water clean. That's why the water, it's the time of the water now to be, yeah, mm. to be cleansed. Yeah. Mm. And we've got to stop poisoning the land. Mm. Yeah. 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 But that's now, it's happening now. Mm. Mm. And the same with our ocean, the fish. We need to make great fish nurseries, you know. 50% of our shoreline, you know, protected. So, so that the rest of the place will be full of fish, you know, and it'll be like it was when, you know, when Tasman turned up, mm. you know. Mm. 
Yeah. I don't know how to complete this conversation. <laughs> oh, well, I'm doing the poetry workshop at the... Yeah. Tamariki Book Festival. Yeah. Yeah. What do you hope to create on that day? Well, I hope to hear the voices of anyone who turns up. Anyone can come. So they can be very little or they can be very old. Mm. And it could be, you know, two or a hundred, but mm. it will be to hear the sound of... Um, yeah, we, we will gather bits from all of the writers and then we'll, we'll make the sounds and yeah, mm. the poetry. Mm. Beautiful. Thanks, Thank you. Kia ora. Thanks, Kia ora. Kei te piri tonu mai te tai Kei te fiti tonu iho te rā Ke te kare tai o te moana, awe miriana e te tai. Norera tina koutou, tina koutou, tina ratatou katoa. Kia ora. Come along to the Tamariki Book Festival November 22nd in the Tūranga TSB space 10 till 4. Check out our podcasts on the Plains FM website. Just search Tamariki Book Festival. Tamariki Book Festival.